Hi folks, thanks for joining us online. Uh, it's really important, I think, that no matter what the circumstances, even if we're locked down, whatever's happening, we continue to gather around God's Word. That is the basis of our unity. We are united in the truth of God's Word and in our process, in our journey of listening to what God is saying to us as a church. So it's so important uh, that you continue to track with us. So thanks again for joining us today. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be surveying the last section of the book of Acts. It's a fairly defined section, uh, that the final section of this book. It's sometimes referred to as the passion narrative of Paul because here Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is showing how Paul's life mirrors that of Jesus. And of course, this is intentional because uh, Paul is used as an example of the outworking of what Luke records Jesus as saying in Luke 9, 23 and 25. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose or forfeit their very self. Now today I want to focus on and help us to understand the value metric being used here in these words of Jesus uh, and the, the value metric really that under, lay undergirded Paul's sense of mission, his whole approach to life. And it's expressed, uh, I think, very well in Paul's words to a group of elders from Ephesus. Now, Paul meets with these elders. This is like a little pastor's conference uh, in which Paul highlights this metric or, or, or value, uh, as I put it. So Acts 20 from verse 22 says this, uh, from verse 17, sorry, says this. From um, Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. As I've read through the story that follows this, right to the end of the book of Acts, I've become increasingly mindful of the disparity between Paul's worldview and that of our culture. Because of our familiarity with these words of Paul and these ideas, we can really overlook how strange these words really are by our cultural standards. I mean, he says, my life is worth nothing to me. Why would he say that? You know, we're told that life is good and we, so long as we're Australians, we feel that we're entitled to a slice of that goodness. And, you know, we think, we tend to think in our culture, this is all there is. So you need to fill this life with, with as much good stuff as possible. And you need to find that perfect relationship and have those rich experiences and get those good things and achieve those personal goals. And 
That's the metric of our culture, yet Paul is operating in a completely different reality and by completely different value metric. That's what I mean by Paul's worldview. Let me explain what I mean by worldview. Our worldview is the lens through which we see our lives, how we see ourselves, how we see the world. It shapes our expectations, our aspirations. Uh, what are our rights and responsibilities? It changes everything. Two people can be in exactly the same circumstances and yet have a completely different experience based on their worldview, the lens through which they see those circumstances. For example, think of yourself aboard a cruise ship. Are you a passenger or are you crew? You see, how you see yourself makes a lot of difference to your sense of entitlements and responsibilities. Maybe you're a member of the family that owns the ship, and that again is different to both passengers and crew. You're going to have a greater sense of ownership and concern for the ship and its success. But then it also makes a difference if the ship is cruising nicely or if the ship is sinking slowly. Well, that scenario drastically changes the way everyone thinks about their situation. In that case, the lowly waitress on the deck is suddenly undifferentiated from the oil magnet, magnate that she's serving. They're both just humans in need of saving. You see, the context, the way that we see our situation changes everything. Now, it's characteristic of our culture that we tend to harbour a high degree of entitlement. We see ourselves as passengers entitled to a certain degree of luxury. Other people are there to help us achieve the happiness that we want. That's kind of how we go in our culture. The Bible, however, heralds a view of human beings in the human situation that challenges this compellingly. We're never just passengers. We, ne we never were. We are something like a combination of the owner's family of, that owns the ship and the crew of the ship. And moreover, here is the important bit. According to the Bible, the ship is slowly sinking. The ship of the world system is passing away. That's what the Bible teaches us. Now, this is a view that we seem to have lost. I think even as Christians, we easily lose this view, and I think it's something that we need to recover. Consider, for example, the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7. This is from the New Living Translation. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on the, their marriage, those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. When we read uh, Paul saying that the time is short, we can easily misinterpret this as you know, him expecting that Jesus was going to come back immediately. But here we need to dif differentiate, as Paul would have, and this is uh, inherent in, in actually the Greek language that he's, uh, he's, he writes in, two different concepts of time. There are two Greek words for time, chronos, which uh, captures our ordinary sense of chronological time. And I want you to imagine a flat timeline with equal, you know, the equal years uh, set out on it. Well, Paul's not talking about chronological time. Another Greek word for time is... Uh, um, is the word kairos. Uh, and 
Kairos uh, is, is a different it, kind of idea. It speaks of decisive moments. And um, we can imagine this in a sense as something like peaks and troughs rather than a flat line. Kairos time works in peaks and troughs. And in the prophetic view of scripture, um, this is often the way that time is seen. They're looking across the peaks uh, and, and they're often in concert, concertina fashion. They often uh, con, um, contract those um, peaks together. You know, we often, you know, chronological time is sort of drawn out and flat, but in the prophetic scriptural view, often those peaks are drawn together, as I said, in concertina fashion. So, so there's this sense that... Um, this sense of urgency, the time is short because we're in the last peak before the last trough before Jesus returns. That's, uh, and so there's a sense of immediacy of the end uh, of this age that is coming about. So we're called to live with a constant sense of the imminence of the end of this age, the final collapse of the world system that's prophesied, for example, in the book of very much in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture. Now, in the ancient world, this was actually not hard to imagine because in those days, and even in people's living memories, they had seen empires rise and fall and collapse quite spectacularly. Interestingly, the Roman Empire of Paul's time was celebrated as the eternal empire, and indeed it lasted a thousand years, but it too fell. Now, when Rome collapsed, many Christians assumed that this must signal the end of the age. But the Roman Empire, as expansive as it was, was just one empire among many others in the world at the time. And since then, we've seen empires rise and fall. Only in recent times have we moved into a globalised situation. And there seems to be, um, in our culture, this widespread optimism about the invulnerability of this global new global situation. Scholars like Steven Pinker, for example, assure us of human progress and our ability as human beings to solve the problems that we face. But there's also a rapidly expanding body of literature that is really challenging this. And as a Christian, in a way, with a Christian biblical worldview, I welcome this. Um, however divergent the details may be and the solutions that they offer, we would disagree with. But it affirms what the Bible has been crying out for centuries. The time is short. The world system is passing away. That's what the Bible teaches us. Consider, for example, uh, thinking of that uh, body uh, of literature, consider, for example, the synopsis of a book called Immoderate Greatness, very interesting book, Immoderate Greatness, Why Civilizations Fail by uh, William Ophels. He says this, Civilizations are hardwired for self-destruction. They travel an arc from initial success to terminal decay and ultimate collapse due to intrinsic, inescapable, biophysical limits combined with an inexorable trend toward moral decay and practical failure. Because our own civilization is global, its collapse will also be global, as well as uniquely devastating owing to the immensity of its population, complexity and consumption. And then a quote from the famous anthropologist Jared Diamond in his book Collapse. It expands on this point about globalization. Jared Diamond says, globalization makes it impossible for modern societies to collapse in isolation, as did Easter Island and uh, the Greenland Norse in the past, examples that he gives in, in the book. 
Any society in turmoil today, no matter how remote, can cause trouble for prosperous societies on other continents and is also subject to their influence, whether helpful or destabilizing. For the first time, he says, for the first time in history, we face the risk of global decline. Now, this isn't kooky doomsday stuff. This is a Pulitzer Prize winning professor at UCLA. We are living, as the Bible says, we are living on a sinking ship. There's less doubt about that now, I think, than ever. And I know that this world system seems secure and invulnerable, but the fact is it's not. As Paul said, this world as we know it is passing away. This, however, is not a message of doom. This is a message of hope. You see, this world system needs to pass away because, again, according to the biblical worldview, it is fundamentally corrupt. It needs to pass away. The passing away, in fact, of this world system is a great theme of celebration in the Bible and certainly in the book of Revelation, for example. Given the corruption of humanity, what we need is not another ingenious human solution. What we need is a divine saviour. And we have that divine saviour in Jesus Christ, who is coming again to bring all things to completion and to usher in the final eternal state. We have that saviour in Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Peter chapter 2 about the ushering in of this eternal state, this new heavens and new earth, uh, as he calls it, picking up, of course, from Isaiah 65. And the same idea is picked up in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. This is talking about the collapse of the world system in classic prophetic language. Something like a purging of this, not, not the destruction of the space-time universe in that sense. It's something like a purging of the world system. Verse 11 of 2 Peter 2. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. In other words, disconnect from that world system and get connected to what God is doing. Verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destructions, the, the, the destruction or purging of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, the home, the home of the righteous. That's when we're home. We're just visitors here. This is the worldview that compelled Paul to live and act and speak as he did. And the implications of this are enormous. It means that life in this world is a transitory stage before an eternal state. A very important transitory stage, but a transitory stage nevertheless. This is an age of tension. The old is passing away. The new is breaking in. We have a taste that the new is breaking. We have a taste of heaven now, but the fullness of that remains future. In fact, the present taste that we have now is meant to make us more dissatisfied with the way that things are in this world, with the state of things now, and more hopeful and eager for what God is bringing about in the future. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. 
from verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, speaking about the resurrection. Okay? So the fruit of the Spirit is this groaning under the weight of this present experience in anticipation of what is coming about. And he says, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. This unlatching ourselves from the world, this disillusionment with the world, and in, in the literal sense, and attaching ourselves to what God is doing. For in this hope, he says, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have, he says. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In this hope, we're saved. Hope, as I said, is becoming disillusioned in the literal sense of the word with the world system detaching from it, locking our hearts on what is to come, specifically on who is coming and who is with us now by his spirit. This, folks, this is an age right now. In other words, this is an age of unfulfillment. The fulfillment, the final fulfillment of all of our desires lies in the future. We have a taste, a compelling taste right now, but fulfillment lies in the future. This is an age of unfulfillment. Let's get that into our minds. The race, to use Paul's illustration when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, the race isn't finished yet. You are not, you are not entitled to the reward until you finish the race. You may not, listen, this is the practical implications of what it means to live in this age, this un, age of unfulfillment. You may not have the relationship that you want. You may not be able to have children. You may not see the fruits of your labour. You may not receive due recognition. You certainly will not reach your full potential. Not, not now in this life. You, you, you won't receive justice, not perfect justice in this life. You won't be fully happy. You won't be fully healed. You won't be fully restored. I mean, even if you experience some dramatic healing of God, even then you're, you're still going to die. It's only in that future moment at the resurrection that you'll be fully healed. Listen, you'll often be hurt, bereaved, unloved, rejected, betrayed. These are the realities of the age in which we live. You will always be unfulfilled, discontent, imperfect and incomplete. That's so discordant with the way that we're taught to think in our world. But everything remains incomplete. We look to the future. That's hope. What we have now though is hope. And with this we have security. Our destiny is secure. And with this we have peace. Peace with God. And with this we have joy, inexpressible joy with God, in relationship with God. God is my portion, the psalmist says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing that I desire besides you, says the psalmist in Psalm 73. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, and this is from the ESV. Therefore, he says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces 
hope. And hope does not put us to shame, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, we're enjoying a taste now of that heavenly reality. But this makes us more discontent with the world the way that it is and more content in God. You know, the more that your life is warmed by the presence of God, the colder the world system will feel to you. When Paul spoke to those Ephesian elders, his whole perspective is framed by his understanding that the ship is sinking. He wasn't going where he had the most chance. This is, you know, Paul wasn't going where he had the most chance of filling his life up with good things. He wasn't, he was going where his purpose lay. And he was willing to give his life for that purpose. Paul gave up property. He gave up his social standing. He gave up his chance of having a family. He gave up any fixed sense of having a home. It was all for God's purpose. He lived like a soldier who had been dropped out of a helicopter in one, on one hill in hostile territory to fulfill a mission to be picked up on another hill on the other side. That's how Paul lived and that's how he's calling us to live. That's how Paul lived after the example of his Saviour who lived for purpose, who said, not my will, but your will, O God, be done. And Paul taught these elders and their churches. This is how the early church, after the example of Paul and Christ before him, this is how the early church worked. You know, they, many of early Christians chose to forego property, the opportunity to have family. They left livelihoods and worldly opportunities for something more important because they recognised what was happening around them. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to be on mission. To be on mission is to be a part of a missional community, the church, because it's never on our own. The church, in a sense, is Christ's platoon. We have been dropped off on one hill for a mission in hostile territory to be picked up on another hill. Folks, we're here for a few days. I mean, comparatively speaking, this life is so short. We're here for a few days. You got dropped off. You're in hostile territory for a particular mission and we're going to be picked up on the other side. Don't get connected. Don't get lost in this territory. Otherwise, you'll miss the pickup on the other side. Let's live understanding the reality of the circumstances. We need to stick to the mission, the mission that Paul began, that he passed on to those churches. As a church, we've found it useful to distinguish three aspects to our mission. One, pursue God. We help people find God and walk closely with Him. Two, build community. We draw and connect people into Christ's church. Three, grow people. We empower people into God's calling and purpose. Will you be a part of that? Ask yourself, what part am I playing? However great, however small. We all do a small part. Life is mission. What are you going to do? I invite you to pray with me now. Father in heaven, we dedicate ourselves to your mission and your purpose. Open our eyes to see and understand the reality of the situation that we are in. Bring a sense by your spirit of urgency into our hearts. Rest us away from our connection with this world system that we might simply love as you loved, that we might invest 
and sacrifice as you sacrificed Jesus, that we might live lives that glorify you. We dedicate ourselves to this in Jesus' name. Amen.